Father, we come to you as a people that are blessed beyond measure. You have done so much for us in Christ Jesus. And you have revealed yourself to us as the God that is beyond our comprehension. And so we rejoice. And yet, Lord, I pray that we would have hearts that are sensitive. And we confess, Lord, I confess, that often I think about you, I know about you, but do I live like there's no one, no one like you? And so I pray, Lord, that we would just um, not go about church as usual today, but realize the majesty, the mystery, the mercy of you that you have poured out on us through Jesus Christ. And we come with expectant hearts. We expect to hear from you and not just a man. We come, Lord, knowing that you know better than we do. And so we open our hearts to learn about this wonderful letter A letter you wrote to the Romans, but it's a letter you wrote to every single person on this planet. And that includes us here. And so we anticipate you speaking to us. Do it, Father, for your glory. By the name and the power of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Good morning. Good morning. Glad to have you all here. And uh, just a good, a good-looking group. Look across your table and say, you know, you're looking good today. You're looking good today. You know, some of you just need to hear that. You know, whether it's true or not, I want to hear it. Don't you want to hear that, right? Whether it's true or not. All right, we're diving in. We got things to do. Good, to, Jessica. Good to see you here. So glad you're here with us. And uh, the Nisleys are here, being the missionary people that they are for Jesus. Isn't that great? We've talked about you last week. We talk about you a lot behind your back about how great you guys are and things God's doing. And as I said last week, uh, they're going to be with us for World Outreach coming up. The dates are there in your bulletin. Uh, block out those dates. Our missions team met. We're going to have a great, we met last night. We're going to have great, great times. The, our kids' celebration, Audra's heading that up this year, and she already has some great plans. And I hope that we can begin praying. God, we want you to do something amazing. And uh, uh, Lord willing, uh, they're going to have all their support, right? They're going to have, I'm, they're getting so close that I'm starting to pray for them. I told Jordan this the other day at lunch. I'm, or do what? What I say? Yeah, I did. I did. They're getting close. And so I'm going to start praying because when, when I do Jordan, it just kicks in like unbelievable. No, let me finish before you humorous people. And it's that table. That's that table. See, Todd would call you down publicly. Uh, I'm going to start praying, Jordan, that they would leave with 110%. We have been praying that they, you know, get 100%. And uh, I think if we would pray, I know Jordan is certainly working hard enough uh, that uh, if God would so choose to bless those efforts, they could have 110%. And they need that. They really do. Am I right? All right. So, and if this all goes as planned, their last Sunday here in the States is going to be with us on our World Outreach celebration sunday and hopefully that thursday they will take off so uh we need to have an extra special celebration but that begins with uh praying to god and asking him to do some marvelous things and that begins with asking him to do something in your heart you know uh lord i'm going to show up expecting and i'm going to invite others to show up expecting and i'm trying to do my part here to help us as we look at romans if we ever get to romans 9 through 11 before the outreach uh to do that now i told these guys last night the missions commission worked all week came up with a great chart but i don't know what i'm going to teach today uh but this is a great chart now uh, if you now for me, I need to do this before I go after a book. This is with how I was taught, and it's just how I'm, I'm I'm been anyway. Now, if this is too overwhelming for you, all you do is you take the bottom of the of the paper and you fold it up 
So yeah, this is no excuse. Oh, this is so. What is all that? Just cover up whatever you know, whichever part you like looking at the most. You just cover that part up and look at it. All right. But it's just listen. When I look at a chart like this, I get so amazed at God's inspired word. You simply can't. You can't contain it. You you can look at it's a diamond with beautiful facets that that God intends for you to look at any one of his books in the Bible. You can see so many different facets. So when you chart like this, there's all sorts of ways to move through a book. And if you'll if you'll read through a book and, and at the end of your notes, I have the challenge to read Romans. Now we got next week, and I'm, I'm right, right, Labor Day. So we got next week, so we're not, we won't have Discovery Hour. Have church, won't have Discovery Hour. So you got two weeks between now and the next time we come together that I want you to read through Romans. She's, oh my goodness, I can't. Do, yes, you can. It, listen, if you were in Rome, they would read this whole thing. That would be the church service, okay? And so you can do this. You can do this in one sitting. I would encourage you to do that. At least you know to do. Try that. Read it all in one sitting but uh to put it in bite size at the end of your notes it says reading through romans in the next it's 16 chapters so if you read one chapter a day for the 16 weeks which is basically the next two weeks you can get through the whole book into by the time next time we meet okay basically by the time next time we meet if you read two chapters a day that means in the next two weeks you get through the book how many times do your math twice right if you read four chapters a day, you can get through it, what? Three? Four? French math, French math. You can get through it. So, try that. And uh, try, you say, why would I want to read it more than once? So you can understand it, okay? So you can understand it and so you can see new things. Read it in a different translation each time if you'd like. There's all sorts of ways to do it, but I would really challenge you to read through this book so that when we do get to Romans 9 through 11, you have a, a, a big picture of that. Now, as you read through it, I'd take this chart and you can look for these different aspects. But if you just really look at the key topics, the second uh, row in there, it's really simple. It's a letter from Paul who presents himself as a servant set apart for the gospel. And he then talks about sin, how the whole world are sinners. Everyone is a sinner in need of salvation. And so then he explains that. And then salvation is never just a decision that happens in the past. Salvation leads to sanctification, living a holy life now that we believe. And then you come to Romans 9 through 11, sovereignty. And we see that God is sovereign in the plan of salvation. And then it leads back into service. And it ends with not just Paul being a servant of the gospel, but all believers are servants set apart for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's really simple. So don't let, let the chart you know, freak you out, but there's different aspects of God's character, of people, and just take that, look through that, and I would challenge you, take the challenge, reading Romans, work through it at least once in the next two weeks. But let's look at your notes. We're still looking at... Uh, Last week we looked at the evangelizing or the planting of the church at Rome. And so we took a trip and we went to Rome and we saw the city of Rome, uh, the city, the eternal city. And we looked at the church at Rome and we looked how that church was planted. And we left off at the people of the church. So I want to give you four characteristics of the people at the church of Rome. And then we'll end with looking at the writing of the letter to the church at Rome. So let's take a look at it. Dive in there. People of the church. The first thing and probably the most important thing I want you to see about the people that made up the church at Rome is they were diverse. They were diverse. They were a diverse group of people. And whenever you have diversity, you have great potential for what? For disunity, right? Because different people rubbing their shoulders, stepping on toes, diversity, and easily divided. Now, the diversity was due to two things. There were some Jews and probably many Gentiles. We don't know what the makeup of the church. But I gave you verses there. As you read through the letter, you'll see him 
suddenly kind of focus on a Jewish issue. And then he'll, he'll talk a lot about the Gentiles. Then he'll go back and he'll talk uh, about the Jews and talk about Abraham. And, and then he'll talk about the nations. And, and you just get the feel that this was a diverse church, probably because it was in the uh, Roman Empire, uh, probably predominantly Gentile, but also Jewish and uh, Jews and Gentiles, you know, just just like certain races, when they get together, there there seems to be high potential for conflict. Well, Jews and Gentiles, you know, were oil and water. They did not mix well. And we saw last week that even the Roman Empire, uh, the Rome Roman Empire, kicked all the Jews out of Rome at one point. Now, I mean, think about that. You know, that's like having your you know New York City saying, okay. You Jewish people have caused way too much trouble. You're all out. You're out. Then, you know, times change, politics change, and then they let them come back in. Well, that kind of uh, racial tension and diversity, that seeps into the church. You know, that doesn't just disappear once you get saved and then you come together. It just takes on a more pious, a, a more spiritual tone, which is even more deadly for disunity. So let's look at some of the reasons for this. Uh, the reason I say that they, they were easily divided or potentially there was disunity because you get Jews and Gentiles together and they're going to ask each other who are sinners in need of a savior and who wasn't because Jews would answer that differently than Gentiles. How would a Jew answer it? Well, a self-righteous law keeping Jew would say, who, who are the sinners? What would they say? Those Gentile pagans, they're the sinners. I mean, we're the law-keeping Jews, you know. But what would a self-righteous, do-gooding uh, Gentile say? You know, Gentile. You know, they're, they're a, a really upstanding, well-educated Gentile would say, "Well, it's certainly not me, right?" But Romans one through three says, or, or in fact, you know, the Gentiles might also say, "Those Jews, they're the sinners. They think they keep the law, but let me tell you, I've seen how they live. They're a bunch of hypocrites." So, when you threw out the question of who's a sinner in need of a Savior, there's division right there. There's an argument. But the gospel, and this is what Romans is about, the gospel that reveals God's righteousness says in Romans 1 through 3, the answer in who is a sinner in need of a Savior, both of you. And therefore, they could be united in their need for Jesus. All right? Second question. If you threw out to uh, there at Rome and said, who needs to be saved by faith alone and who doesn't? Well, a self-righteous, law-keeping Jew might say, not me. I don't need faith. I do the works of my father, Abraham. I keep the law according to Moses. I, I don't, you know, I believe, but it's not my faith that saves me. It's my works. But a self-righteous, do-gooder Gentile might say, not me. I know right and wrong when I see it. Now, notice he's not saying he does it. He just knows right and wrong when he says, I can judge, you know, what's wrong, what's right. I, I, I don't need faith. But, and, and, and let me say this, it's not just unsaved people that could be saying this. What would a Jewish believer say to this question? Who needs to be saved by faith alone? A Jewish believer might say, well, it's not us. Or, or it's, it's not those Gentiles. Uh, it's not those Gentiles because they need to be not only believe in Jesus, but they need to be circumcised and keep the law. Faith alone is not enough. They need to adhere to what we as Jews have always followed. So a Jewish believer might say that. A Gentile believer might say, well, it's not those Jews. They couldn't be just saved by faith. They've rejected their Messiah. So they're just off they, they, they've already rejected salvation well Romans 3 through 5 says as it reveals God's righteousness both Jew and Gentile are saved by faith alone in Christ just like Abraham the father who is the father of all who are saved by faith you see what he does in Romans 3 through 5 he says he cuts through all that and says look you all need to be saved by faith because Abraham was not only the father of the Jews, he's the father, really, of all who believe by faith because he didn't, 
get saved because he kept the law. He was before the law. And so that's what he does in Romans 3 through 5. Here's another question they may have asked one another. Who is empowered with God's life-giving spirit and who isn't? Okay, who's got the gift of God's spirit in them? Well, a proud Jewish believer might say, we Jews who believe in Jesus and keep the law of Moses. We've got the, the whole package here. We got the whole pack. We don't just believe in Jesus. We also keep the law. God's spirit is poured out on us. But a Gentile, a proud Gentile believer might say, we Gentiles are the ones who have the spirit because we're so spiritual. We're not legalistic like you Jewish believers. You Jewish believers are always looking at the laws and, and the rules and the regulations and dotting your I's and crossing your T's. Us Gentiles, we're free from that. We're the spiritual ones. But the gospel that reveals God's righteousness in Romans 6 through 8 says this, both Jew and Gentile are set free from the law as a means of being spiritual, and they are empowered by the indwelling spirit to keep the law, not through the flesh that's always weak, not through sheer willpower, but by faith in the gospel. You see, all through this letter, Paul is taking a potentially divisive people and by the gospel that reveals God's righteousness, he's able to unite them. Let's look at another question. Here's a question that I I guarantee you they asked, and it's at the heart of Romans 9 through 11. Who are God's chosen people now and who isn't? Who are God's chosen people? Well, of course, a proud Jewish believer would say what? The Jews, that's who. Who else? We are the promised people. We have the covenants. We are uh, descended from Abraham. And we are believers in Jesus as the Messiah. But a proud Gentile believer might say, who's God's chosen people? It may have been you Jews in the past, but it's not you Jews now because you rejected the promised Messiah, Jesus. And we Gentiles, in our ignorance, have accepted him. And so now we're the enlightened ones. We are the favored ones. God's turned his back on you as a Jewish people. Now, I I won't, we'll we'll get into this more as we go down, but I just want to stop right there at that point. That is a predominant, that has been a predominant problem in church history and even today. Anti-Semitism among Christians. That is in light of God's people turning their back on Jesus back in the first century. God has turned his back on them, and therefore we should be, in a sense, turning our backs on them and hostile, antagonistic. Anti-Semitism has been a constant temptation to the Gentile Christians throughout church history, and it hasn't gone away yet. Europe is ripe with it. It's a little more subverted here in America, and yet, if you'll listen with ears that are sensitive to what people say, this is still very much real. And unfortunately, a lot of Christian theologians have taught that God has turned his back on ethnic Israel, that he's turned his back. Well, guess what? The gospel that reveals God's righteousness says in Romans 9 through 11 that both Jew and Gentile are God's chosen people who believe in Jesus. That God hasn't broken his promises to ethnic Israel. And he will not break his promises to us as Gentile believers. And so it's an amazing thing that God chooses his people out of both Jew and Gentile. And that's what Romans 9 through 11 is about. Two more questions. Who is spiritually strong and who isn't? This is Romans 12 through 15. A proud Jewish believer might say, us Jewish believers are the spiritually strong ones because we believe and keep the law. Or, think about this. Sometimes the people that are the the most proud are the people that come out of deep legalism or a religion that's very ritualistic and rule-keeping. They get saved and then they overreact to that. You know what I mean? They're like, I don't want anything to do with rules. I'm, you know, spiritually strong. I don't, you know, and if you tell them, hey, you ought to read your Bible. No, hey, that's legalism. Hey, you know what? You ought to give. Oh, that's legalism. I'm spiritually strong. I don't need to give, you know. I don't need to be in the Word. God just kind of oozes it into me. I'm so spiritual. 
So we don't want to categorize Jews, Jewish believers were tempted to be legalists. Gentile believers were tempted to be liberals. Sometimes it's the opposite. Coming out of legalism, you have a tendency to overreact and be real liberal and, and react against rules. And sometimes coming out of an immoral, open lifestyle where you've indulged in anything, you get saved. And boy, you can become one of the strictest, harshest, uh, most rigid people. Shake your head like you've halfway experienced that or maybe know people who have. What I'm trying to do here is get you into this book, see the historical setting, but understand that it's current and relevant to us right now and today. So the gospel that reveals God's righteousness in Romans 12 through 15 says this about who's spiritually strong and weak. Both Jew and Gentile are to accept one another in their strengths and weaknesses for love's sake. We will answer to the same Lord. Okay, that's Romans 12 through 50. One last question on this diversity that could lead to division. Who needs the gospel sent to them and who doesn't? The issue of missions. Ask a self-absorbed Jewish believer, and he might say, not those pagan Gentiles. The, the, not those pagan. They're too, they're too pagan. They don't want anything to do with the gospel. They'll never get saved. Now, what group of people in this world, uh, ethnically and spiritually, might we say, it's not worth it to go to them? They're too hostile to the gospel. Huh? Yeah, yeah, Muslims, Muslims. We might have that tendency to have that attitude. Or, or listen to this, a, Jewish, a self-absorbed Jewish believer might say this about who needs the gospel. Not those Jews, they turned their back on our Savior. But I, you know, I didn't, but they did. They don't deserve a second chance. Okay? A self-absorbed Gentile believer might say, not those hypocritical Jews. Look, they've had centuries to get ready for Jesus. He came on the scene and they crucified him. Let's move on to better prospects. Or he, a, a, a self-absorbed Gentile believer might have the oppo opposite reaction and say, not those pagan Gentiles, forgetting that he was one. But the gospel that reveals God's righteousness from uh, that, that reveals God's righteousness in Romans 15 and 16, the last two chapters, says both Jew and Gentile need to hear the gospel. For God is still cho choosing and saving a remnant of Jews and a chosen number of Gentiles. We share the gospel with all peoples. So what I've tried to do right there is I've just taken you all the way through the book of Romans and shown you that this church... This diverse church of some Jews and some Gentiles, both being believers, yet coming with diverse perspectives. Now, look around this room. And I'm telling you, those same, if, if I, we throw out those same questions, we can answer those same questions with a diversity of opinion. And here's the, the thing I want you to get out of this. It really doesn't matter what you and I think. What matters is the gospel that reveals God's righteousness. And so as we look at the book of Romans, we're going to learn that, listen, unity, unity, uh, diversity can be a source of disunity, but can also be a source of tremendous creativity. And it can be an opportunity to demonstrate the power of the gospel. Look right there at your table where you're sitting. Look around at your table and say, what do I have in common with these people? What do I have in common with these people? Well, maybe you shouldn't do that. I don't know. Well, here's the thing. There's two ways you can answer that. Oh, I have everything in common with these. They look, you know, we, we're all so alike. Well, you know what? I, I'm not quite sure that's exactly God's ideal for His local church. In a very real sense, the thing that we have in common, or at least should have, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we have been sinners saved by grace. 
that we are spiritually weak apart from the indwelling Holy Spirit, that we needed the gospel and someone gave it to us and our our Lord and Savior is Jesus Christ. Personalities aside, differing opinions aside, we are banded together here for one purpose, one mission, we're one team, and it's the gospel that brings us together. And really, if you haven't marveled at some of your close friends in this church, if you haven't taken the time and realized, you know what? We would probably have never been friends apart from Jesus. We would never have known each other. We wouldn't have hung with each other because we don't exactly smell the same, look the same, talk the same, like the same. But we have bonded as a group because why? The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, if you're not marveling at that, you've gotten over, you, you've gotten over something that you should never have gotten over. Well, I could take you to Romans 16 where Paul greets 26 people in this church by name and go through all the diversity there, Jew and Gentile, men and women, single and married, young and old, rich and poor, free and slave, it's a little dance, leaders and followers, extraordinary people, very ordinary people, converts of Peter, converts of Paul, all united. They were a diverse group, easily divided, but the gospel united them. Number two, though they were diverse, they were dedicated. They were a dedicated group. They were a dedicated. And Paul highlights this. You know, so I don't want you to think they were always fighting and bickering. That's not it. They were a dedicated team of living sacrifices in the service of the Lord with a worldwide reputation for being obedient to the gospel. Look at Romans 12, 1 and 2. Probably the most popular of verses in this book. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Many of you, I'm sure, have this memorized. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, your reasonable act of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Listen, that's not just a memory verse. That is not just a memory verse. That, is a re- that was a living reality in the members at the Church of Rome. I like to take that verse, and then I like to go to Romans 16. As I said, listed 26 people. But as he lists these 26 people in Romans 16, he talks about their ministry. He talks about their commitment to Christ. He goes through and just... Well, in fact, let me give you the number one couple. Turn to Romans 16. Three, as he lists 26 people, pride of place goes to the lay couple Priscilla and Aquila. Aquila and Priscilla. Every name, nearly every name, has some positive remark and highlights the sacrificial service of these dedicated members. But pride of place goes to this lay couple who were close friends of Paul. And here's what he says in verse 3, right off the top. Greet Prisca, which is kind of a, a shortened uh, nickname for Priscilla, and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Okay, lay couple, nothing special about them, business people who wherever they went, whether they were in Rome, Corinth, or Ephesus, would open up their home and the church would meet in their home. But notice what he says in verse 4. Blow you away. Who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house. Wherever you see this couple, they got a church in their house. Now that alone, you that host our iLife groups know what that is, week in, week out, to be hosting a group. That's sacrificial service. But what he's saying there, he's saying, I'd be a dead man if this couple had not literally risk their lives to save me. And in saving me, I've been able to be a missionary to all these Gentiles and these churches rise up and give thanks. You know, we think of them, oh, thank you for the Apostle Paul. He was so great. No, they go, forget him. It's Priscilla and Aquila. They saved his neck. 
I don't know, I get excited about that. Well, it wasn't just this couple. This church had a global reputation. Look at Romans well, well uh, look at Romans 16:19 since you're there so you don't turn around a lot. Look at Romans 16:19. Here's what he says to this church. For your obedience has become what? Known to all. Therefore, I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning either. Your obedience has become known to all. Now turn back to Romans 1.8. So this is the beginning of the book and the end of the book. Beginning of the book, end of the book. Look at Romans 1.8. First, I thank my God through Jesus. Here's the first thing he thanks him for. First, I thank God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Now, you put Romans 1 and 16 together. He says your faith, and then in Romans 16, he says your obedience, and there you got the book of Romans, of faith that obeys, of faith that obeys. He says, look, they know about your faith all around the world, and they know that it's a faith that works, and they know that all around the world. You have a global reputation, but here's what he wants them to do. He wants their global reputation to become a global obsession with getting the gospel out to all peoples. He's, look, look, they know what the gospel has done to you. Now I want them to know what the gospel can do through you. And that's the problem, isn't it? We stop the gospel potentially with ourselves. We accept it. We revel in it. We tell everybody that we got saved. They marvel at it. And that's what the gospel did in us. But what's your reputation for what the gospel does through you to be spread to others? Do you have a reputation like that? Or or, Or does the gospel end with you? Well, that's what he's challenging. He said, look, you're a dedicated team. I want you to keep you on track. I want you, I want you to have your global reputation become a global obsession with getting the gospel out. Therefore, you can't let this petty differences between you hinder that. Here's what Paul wants. He wants unity for the sake of ministry. And listen, there's nothing that stops the gospel in a local church like differences among petty personalities, petty differences that get our eyes off the gospel and the greater purpose that, hey, we're not here to agree and have my likes and, and my, my, back, my spiritual back scratched with the kind of music that I prefer, with the kind of service I prefer, or with the kind of whatever I prefer. We're here to be a mobilizing force for the gospel. Therefore, number three, they were... These people were parts of dynamic, dynamic local churches that met in homes. So the church at Rome, we think of the church at Rome, and we probably think of a big building with a cross on top, and they all gather, and they know. The church at Rome are all these little churches that are meeting and gathering in homes. And so we see this, turn back to Romans 16, we see that with Priscilla. There was a church that gathered in the home of Priscilla and Aquila. And then I love these names, so I'll just act like I know what I'm saying. Asyncritus, in uh, verse 14, there was a home there. Uh, Philogus, Philogus, I'll call him Phil, in verse 15. Aristobulus, in verse 10. And Narcissus, how'd you like to have that name? In verse 11. Now, not all of these people, some of these people weren't even saved, and there was churches meeting in their homes. You know, they had large church. These were larger homes, probably had a courtyard, and the church could gather. So don't think of your living room, okay? Uh, they would often knock out walls. They found uh, residences with walls knocked out and crosses inscribed on the walls. Church Homes literally turned into churches because they didn't buy property, build a building, and do all that uh, shtick. Uh, so, dynamic. Number four, developing. They were a developing group of people. A developing. In what way? They were developing quickly into a growing force for world evangelization. Six years after the writing of Romans, and before Paul's two-year house arrest in Rome. So this is six years after this, and two years before Paul ever gets there. A 
hist- uh, the Roman church was a very large group. At the outbreak of Nero's persecutions in A.D. 64, here's a, a secular historian, Tacitus, describes the Christians in Rome as an immense multitude. So there's just this group of, of believers, dynamic, developing, a force that, you know, the Apostle Paul, he looks at a group of people like that and he just licks his chops. He's just like, man, what God can do through a group of people like you. So I can't wait to get there. And I just hope that God can use me and that God can use you and that together we can partner and out of Rome we can evangelize the western half of the empire. Don't worry about the eastern. I already got that covered. Okay? So there you go. That's the people. You know? Look in your notes. You, you know, the, I, I think I wrote it wrong, but the, the saying goes, When in Rome? Do what? Yeah, yeah, there you go. Let's, let's say it a bit louder like, we, like I, I picked a relevant illustration. When in Rome? When in Rome, do as the Romans do. What do you take away from last week planting the church, the people in the church? Well, I think we should take that saying and when in Rome, do what the Romans do. Listen, we're in Rome, okay? We're Gentiles in a Gentile culture. We're facing the same challenges. So we're in Rome. In fact, literally the scriptures call the church age... You know, we're in the Roman Empire stage. Uh, I won't go into that, but literally we are spiritually in a Roman age as under the Gentiles. But we're believers in Jesus Christ. Two things I, I point out here. In a culture and city very much like our own, a church was planted, established, and needed to multiply. Folks, we need to do the same. We need to do it. We need to do it. God wants to do it. Second thing I want you to see is the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Not just in the past, but in the present and on into the future. Not just for individuals, but for entire churches. Not just in our culture, but in every culture, every people group around the world. And that's why we have our World Outreach Celebration. And that's why we're studying this book. Not to go back into the past, but to go in the past to realize the present and shape the future. And I hope that's what God's going to do. Well, let's look at writing to the church at Rome. Most of this is written for you, so we don't need to dwell on a lot of it. But just to get a little understanding, there's the, there's the planting of the church, but now Paul's writing to it. When did he write and where was he? Sometime between A.D. 55 or 57, there's just between those two to three years in that time, those two years, at Corinth, near the end of his third missionary journey. He's had three missionary journeys in the western part of the empire and has felt he's completed God's task in the western part of the empire. He's been at this, because sometimes we read these books, and at least I do, I get confused. He's been at this for 20 plus years. He, he, he's at his midlife. Some of you have, have gone through that. You, you, it's a transitioning period. It's a time to evaluate. Well, he's not having a crisis. He's not getting a convertible, trading out an old aging wife for a trophy wife. He's not having that kind of midlife crisis. He's on track, and he's saying, look, I did it for the last 20. I'm going to do it for the next 20, 40 until Jesus comes. But Romans, I need you to help me. And so he's writing from Corinth. He's completed three missionary journeys. Uh, You could go to Corinth. The man's been beaten. He's been left for dead. Uh, You name it. Beaten with rods. Stoned. And he rises up. And picks it. The guy is scarred, he is battled, he is weary, and he's filled with a fire for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's going to finish strong. It's written near the end of Paul's three-month stay at Corinth. You can read about that in Acts 20. He was anxious to minister and receive ministry from this famous church. We've gone through why. Because they were a diverse, dedicated, dynamic, developing church that could be a home base for him to evangelize the West, just like the church at Antioch and the church of Ephesus had been for him in the East. Number three, Paul's ultimate goal was to establish a relationship with his church, which would result in them fully participating in the worldwide proclamation of the gospel 
by supporting him as a missionary. Any missionaries here? Nikki? Are you, you okay? Just check. Just check it. All right. Can, can you guys relate to it? Am I saying your name right? Pethels. Pethel. Beth. Pethel. All right. Kind of like uh, narcissists. I'm having <laughs> Pethel. Pethel. They're going to Italy. Glad to have you guys with us. Uh, so, guys, don't be ashamed of asking for support. The Apostle Paul did. Number four, Paul's travel plans were to leave Corinth, deliver the collection from the Gentile churches to the needy saints in Jerusalem, and then be refreshed in Rome on his way to evangelize Spain. Travel agent's dream. We'll talk more about that. Number four, Paul writes from the home of his Corinthian host, Gaius. In Romans 16, 23, he says, Gaius, my host, and the host of the whole church. See, there's another home that was opened up for the gospel ministry. He greets you. So he's written from, writing from his home, Gaius. Gaius is mentioned elsewhere in 1 Corinthians because that's where, where he lived and worshipped. Number six, Tertius wrote the letter that Paul was dictating to him under divine inspiration. So sometimes we think of Paul writing all this out. Most of the times he was not writing this stuff by hand. He was under the inspiration. And when I say inspiration, I'm not talking about a poet or an artist being inspired. We're talking about God moving through his personality to write the very words of God. He would be, I see him pacing in a room. Uh, you know, maybe if I was more pious, I'd see him bent over in prayer. But I see him, you know, pacing the room. God is moving on his spirit to say the very words of God. And as he writes, Tertius is writing it down. Romans 16.22 says, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. And then seventh, uh, somewhat uh, ironic to some, but very normal for the, for the New Testament church, Phoebe, a, a woman belonged who belonged to the church at Sectacre near Corinth probably delivered the letter to Rome. So here's a woman, a laywoman, delivering the letter, a layman writing the letter, a layman opening home so the letter could be written. And we see this in Romans 16.1. I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Sectacre. Now, listen to what it says. Turn your Bibles if you haven't yet. Turn to Romans 16, 1 and 2, because I do want you to see this. Romans 16, 1 and 2. The role of Phoebe. I commend to you, Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church at Sanctuary. Circle that word servant. It could be translated deaconess. Okay? Deaconess. It, it, she, see, and so... Uh, uh, the, and, but that's what the word, you know, the English word deacon is not translated. It's just Greek brought over into English. So you, whenever you read the word deacon, you have to say, what's that mean? And what it means is servant. And then you're like, well, that's not exciting. Let's keep calling it deacon so we can fill it with our own meaning. No, let's, let's understand what the word means. It means a servant. So she was a servant, perhaps in official role as a deaconess of the church in Sennacherib that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. Wow. You get that kind of uh, recommendation by the Apostle Paul. Let me tell you, this woman was a helper. Circle that word helper. Uh, one of the gifts of the Spirit, uh, one of the gifts of the Spirit is helping. And here's what helping it, not serve. Serving is one gift. Helping's a different gift. What is the helping gift? The helping gift is one of the greatest gifts in the church. And that's a person that says, I don't care what I do, but if it frees you up to do what you need to do, then I want to help you. And that's not just for the pastors. That would be for anyone. Helper, people with the gift of helping, they just run around going, what can I do to free you up so you can do what you're more gifted at? Wonderful gift. Wonderful gift. And Paul takes that gift, and this gifted lady, who in that culture and at that time women were demeaned and kind of looked down upon, and she, he just exalts her up and says, hey, it's not just us preachers, it's not just us apostles, it's not just the people up front, it's the people behind the scenes that can move 
and mobilize the church for Jesus Christ. Honor this lady. Now, let me just say, make one comment here about the role of Phoebe and the other women praised. In Romans 16, and it, it, by the way, Romans 16 is the only chapter in the whole book of Romans I've ever preached. And it's a great chapter to begin with. I do everything out of craziness in Romans, obviously. Uh, start with the last chapter, jump into the middle. That's all right. We'll figure that out. But it's a great chapter. 26 people are mentioned. You know that nearly 40% are women. And they are most often associated with, with positions of high value and influence. Now, let me just say two observations about that. Because if, you, if, you're, if there's a whole gender debate about women's roles in the church, and it's only becoming greater, and it's not going to go away, and here's the thing you need to realize. The biblical balance is this. As we look at Phoebe and what Paul just wrote in these two verses, as we look at these women, over nearly 40% listed, their role should not be overestimated. Hey, Phoebe's this great helper and servant. Therefore, women should be pastors. That's a huge jump in overestimating the focus of Scripture. Yet, the role of women should never be underestimated. Women can't do anything significant except change divers, cook meals, and uh, have potlucks. Okay? So, as you, as you look at this, I'm just, that's a freebie, giving to you that free. There's a biblical balance here. God honors male headship, male leadership, and he honors women in their influence and in their roles. It's a biblical balance. And uh, ladies, don't sell yourself short. We don't. We don't sell you short at this church. Uh, at the same time, we order our church according to Scripture. And we order our families according to Scripture. And we'll do that, you know, regardless of what the culture says. Because the gospel that reveals God's righteousness says there's a way for man and woman in Christ to complement and complete one another it works in the home when Jesus is Lord. It works in the church when Jesus is Lord. And together, we're in it together. Amen? Is that just not good? Man, Chris, that is good. Keep it up. All right. We won't get any farther today. Um, I'm still trying to figure out how to introduce this book, so keep praying with me. My confusion is evident, I know. I'm sorry for that. It makes me dependent on Jesus. I hope you're getting a feel for this book. Um, give me one minute here. Get, get, get everything put away or do whatever you're doing. Actually, don't put it away, but you already have. So, Look on that last page of your notes. We'll, we'll come, next week, we'll, we'll try to give you the real big picture, the big idea. But this is a monumental book. This is a monumental book. It's an intimidating book. And there's a reason why, you know, 20 plus years here, I haven't tackled it. Doesn't mean I haven't been studying it. Doesn't mean I haven't been reading it. Doesn't mean I haven't been immersed in it. I have for a lot of years. But it is a monumental book. And I want you to, in these next two weeks, I want you to read God's Word. And I want you to experience what I've experienced, and I want you to experience it even more. Because God can, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm like one inch in this ocean of God's majesty in this book. If you can get a foot or two foot beyond me, I'll gladly sit at your feet and learn from you. So I'm not trying to get you to catch up with me. I'm trying to get you to jump in with me. But you'll never do that if you don't read this book for yourself. And if you look at that last page... Point number four is simply this. This book has exerted a profound influence upon the course of Christian theology and history 
and missions. And in large measure, we would not be here today if God had not inspired this book. This book, the reading of this book, I had the privilege for many years to go to Romania and teach in a national church, church history. That meant I had to study it. It's always good to study something you're going to teach. And in studying church history and immersing myself in that for many years, it is freaky how at every dark moment, it is this book that ignites revival. It is this book that brought the Reformation to Europe. It is this book that has caused some of the greatest leaders in Christianity to be saved. It has brought them to repentance and regeneration. Luther, Augustine, John Wesley. This book can bring revival to our lives. This book can turn your life upside down. Warning, reading this book can be transforming. You won't comprehend it all, but last time I checked, I didn't comprehend all of God or the gospel anyway, but it still changed my life, and it is changing my life. Hey, the humblest, simplest person can read this book and go, whoa, God is speaking to me. And yet the smartest, most intellectual, most highly educated can read this and still not plumb the depths of it. Let me challenge you these next two weeks. Read Romans and ask God to reveal himself and ask him to do a work in you. That way, when we come back in two weeks, I'm immersed in it, you're immersed in it, and we're going to see some great things that God's going to do. Amen? And that chorus that Kirk led us in, it's all about his majesty. It's all about his majesty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come and I stand awed and humbled at what you have done in the past with this church, both in Rome and here in Kansas City. And yet, Lord, I pray that you would do it again, that you would do more, that you would take us as a dynamic and diverse group of individuals and we would be a powerhouse for your gospel. Oh, it may not be flashy. It may not get headlines. We may not have books written about us. But Lord, you keep track and you're the one that does the work. And many of those believers in Romans 16, no one knew about. But you did. And now they're written in a book for us to read. And Father, someday in heaven, we're going to stand before you and our names are going to be called out and you are going to commend us, reward us, and share and shower your glory on us for doing some of the simplest things like Phoebe did of delivering the word of God from one city to another. And Lord, we have missionaries here and we're anticipating their arrival in October and it's no small thing to help people take the gospel from one continent to another. And so I pray, Lord Jesus, move in our hearts, bring revival, and let it begin with me. For your glory and for the joy of all people. In Jesus' name, amen.